Elin Warren Batanzo is the former EPA worker who alerted Dr. Mona Hanna Atisha to what was likely happening to children in Flint. On this episode of Created Equal, my conversation with founder of Safe Water Engineering LLC, Elin Warren Batanzo. It was founded on the principle We hold these Jews to be self-evident That all men are created equal That all men are created equal How did Dr. Mona come to even be concerned about Flint water? The answer is Elan Batanzo, a lifelong friend of Dr. Mona's and a water quality expert who sensed from a memo that the water disaster was about to unfold. She was instrumental in uncovering Flint's water crisis. So let's start with this memo that you saw and what you concluded based on that memo and what sort of motivated you, I guess, to, to go to Dr. Mona and say, something doesn't add up here. Yeah, so I was living in Michigan and following the news about Flint water because I'd seen headlines that there were some uh, Safe Drinking Water Act violations going on there. And uh, in one of the articles that I saw, I think Kurt Guyette had been reporting and published a memo from a former colleague of mine, Miguel Del Toro, from the EPA Chicago Region 5 office. And in that memo, he had said that he knew that Flint was not using corrosion control, that they have many lead service lines in the city of Flint. And he was very concerned, based on sampling that he had done there, that there were very high lead levels in the water there. And you said, for instance, and it's quoted in the book, that I worked with Miguel. I know Miguel. I trust him. And he wouldn't write this memo if there wasn't a serious problem. Dr. Mona says the urgency on Elon's face was unmistakable. Yes. Yeah. Talk about how you felt when you were talking to Dr. Mona about these things, that you had experience with this issue uh, in Washington, D.C. before. Mm -hmm. This was kind of an echo of something that you saw that was pretty harrowing. Right. Yeah. So I lived in Washington, D.C. during the D.C.-led crisis, and I worked for EPA during that time. So there had been uh, they made a water treatment change there, and there'd been about three years of high lead in the water, and and that had been covered up, you know, very much like the Flint water crisis, and that was reported in the media there. And what I had learned from my experience uh, in Washington, D.C., that nobody was really going to pay attention to the fact that there was lead in the water until there was some evidence that people were being harmed by it, even though they were violating a drinking water regulation. And so when I saw Miguel's memo about Flint, I, I saw that the same thing was happening there, and I was trying to figure out what in the world could I do to uh, you know, break this open because there was definitely harm there. So when Mona invited me over for dinner one night and started talking about her commute to Flint, all the pieces fell together in my mind, and I realized that she had the ability to do this. Uh, and at the EPA, um, uh, you tried to you tried to address these elevated levels uh, in Washington when that crisis was unfolded, mm -hmm. and the EPA wasn't terribly responsive to your to your concerns. Is that right? Right. Yeah. So after the story broke in the Washington Post about high lead in the water, my boss came to me the next workday and said. Elin, can you find evidence that children have ever been poisoned by lead in the drinking water? Because all we ever hear about is being poisoned from lead paint. And so what I've learned uh, in my research at that time and since then is that generally when, when there is a child that is found to be lead poisoned, if there is an investigation at that home, 
once they find one source of lead exposure, they don't continue to uh, investigate any further. So if there's lead paint in the home, they say that's a lead paint exposure. That's the problem. We're going to remediate the paint. They don't go and see, is there an additional contribution from the water? And so for that reason, and because of the way we sample the water and the way we sample children, it is very hard to detect when a elevated lead exposure is due only to the water. So it was really hard to bring evidence uh, to my boss at that time that it was the drinking water that really can uh, poison children. But what we found uh, since then, um, actually in, in 2004, the Centers for Disease Control had put out a study that said that no children in D.C. were harmed by the D.C. lead crisis, but then put out a correction, not until 2010, six years later, saying that we actually excluded records from that analysis. And when we include them, we find that there is actually a evidence that the children living in homes with lead service lines have uh, elevated blood lead levels uh, at a much higher rate than the children who don't. So um, we had evidence there, but six years too late to do anything about it. We haven't had any of the interventions in Washington, D.C. that we've, uh, Mona's been able to accomplish in Flint. Yeah. And in that way, uh, it must feel to you as though what happened in Flint and the response to it, partially at least thanks to things that you said and did, are kind of a makeup for what happened in Washington. I mean, we talked with Mark Edwards uh, recently about mm -hmm. that Washington crisis. He said the same thing, that, that things there did not get fixed uh, the way that they should have. Uh, and they certainly haven't been fixed or hadn't been fixed in the way that things happen in Flint. It, it strikes me that that one of the reasons that uh, that Flint happened differently was because of what you said. Right, because we caught that there were health effects right in the middle of it. And I think it has really changed our conversation nationwide about lead and drinking water because we've had many lead crises, uh, the D.C. lead crisis, the Flint water crisis. They're not the only ones. We have lead and drinking water we've had and. Uh, lead action level exceedances all over the country. There's Portland, Denver, Pittsburgh, Newark. These are just a few. Um, we've got more here going on in Michigan as well. But it really changed the conversation to have evidence of harm in the middle of that crisis. And I think that's why we've been talking about lead and drinking water a lot more, and especially here in Michigan. I'm Ian DeLisi. I'm Rob Reinhardt. And we're about to bring back the perfect opportunity to honor your favorite pet and support WDET. During our spring fundraiser, Ann and I will combine our shows so you can honor your dog. Or your cat. Or your dog. And WDET with a gift of support. We're looking forward to hearing about your pets, no matter what kind of cat that is. Cats and dogs and and any other pet you may have will be part of our fundraiser. And if you can't wait till the weekend, make your gift now at WDET.org slash give. Or call 800-959-9338. Yeah. Talk about the things that we've done that that um, that have mattered and maybe the things that are left undone still uh, in response to the Flint water crisis. Well, from a drinking water perspective, I think the big uh, thing that's happening in Flint is that they are replacing the lead service lines. And uh, according to reports out from the city of Flint, they're expecting either this month or this summer to finish replacing all of the lead service lines where um, that are actively serving homes with active water accounts. And that would probably be the fastest lead service line replacement program we've had in this country. And so that that is a huge 
huge deal. Um, they've been replacing full lead service lines all the way from the water main all the way to the home. Uh, and most water utilities, past practice has always been to do a partial lead service line replacement you know, just to the curb. And there's a bunch of health concerns related to that practice. So the fact that they're doing this and distributing filters uh, in Flint is a huge deal. That's from the drinking water perspective. They've switched back to the Detroit water, mm -hmm. increased their corrosion treatment there. Flint is still a system that is very oversized for the population there. So we still have water quality concerns and they have to manage their distribution system very carefully to make sure that um, the water is moving, that they have maintain water quality for the entire system. And, and that's a real challenge when that system was developed for a population of over 200,000. They have less, less than 100,000 there right now. Uh, talk about that that idea of big systems built for many more people than they serve now and and how that introduces danger into the into the drinking water. Yeah, so you want the water in your water system to uh, move quickly to the customer because the the shortest time between treatment and consuming it is you know you have the best water quality because my microbes can enter the distribution system, they can grow and they're already in there. Um, you can have disinfection byproducts that form. The longer the water is just stagnant in your pipes and your household plumbing, you can have lead and copper and other metals leaching into the drinking water. So like the key to water quality is just get it to your mouth as fast as possible. <laughs> and um, so when you've got these oversized systems, it just stays in these large diameter water mains for a long time. And so from that perspective, when, when those systems are a little leaky, it actually helps move the water along, even though we don't want to waste water and that's expensive. Um, you just want to get that water to the user as fast as possible. Yeah. Your work has focused more on, I think, the systems that take that water and, and pump it to our, our, our taps in our houses. But we have problems on both ends, right? I right. mean, it, it, there is a problem with, uh, with source as well as system. Right. And the, the cleaner we keep the source, the easier it is to treat and deliver reliable drinking water to people. Um, one thing about drinking water systems uh, they've been, I think before the Flint water crisis, a lot of people have really considered the drinking water systems like completely separate from the environmental systems and that you can, you can treat any source water. You can take the dirtiest water and if you put enough money and treatment into it, you can make it, you know, perfect drinking water. And so uh, where communities have money for that, that's not a problem. <laughs> but where communities don't have money for that, then of course the drinking water is very much at risk. But um, you know, our drinking water is part of our environmental, it's part of the water cycle. So we need to consider that all together. But I also want you to address this, um, uh, I guess the serendipity, I guess, of, of the way in which this unfolded because you knew Dr. Mona, you you two have been friends, I think, since high school, yes. you have said. Um, and that made it easy, I guess, for you to get uh, the information to her and for her to act on it. Mm -hmm. But that's not really the way this is supposed to work. Right. And and if not that for— concerns me very much. <laughs> right. If not for that friendship. Right. I really wonder what, uh, what, what might have happened in Flint that would have been worse than what actually uh, that, that actually happened. What was the failure— um, that that left it to, you know, this this wonderful friendship uh, to to uncover this massive public health problem. Well, I think there 
there are multiple failures along the way and also kind of just many lucky coincidences that um, had me in the right place in the right time to be able to tell Mona about what was happening. But so some of those failures are the federal lead and copper rule is just completely inadequate for uh, make, making sure drinking water is safe from lead. And uh, when they did have evidence of lead in the water, that's the time to address it. We don't, we should never, ever be waiting to measure lead in children to address it because it's a, lead is a potent irreversible neurotoxin with multi-generational impacts. And so once you have waited to measure it in the children, it's far too late. So we need to develop a culture of when there's lead in the water, we address the lead in the water. Mm. Uh, and tell us about uh, Safe Water Engineering, this company that you have founded. So I've been, I, I, I had the opportunity to start my own company uh, because so many people were uh, asking me <laughs> to help them uh, with their <laughs> drinking water issues and uh, help them understand about lead in the drinking water. So I have been uh, doing some consulting for water utilities. I've been doing some consulting with Detroit. I've been working with some uh, environmental nonprofits who have been not involved in drinking water conversations in the past and they've realized we need to get up to speed very quickly. So that's been very rewarding to work with them and help them understand and engage better in our drinking water issues. So those are the types of work I'm doing. On the next episode of Created Equal, we'll hear from the ACLU investigative journalist who went door to door in Flint to tell the world what was actually happening in the city. We had to be bulletproof in terms of what we are doing because we knew that they were going to come after us and, and attack us. Created Equal is a production of WDET, Detroit's NPR station. Our executive producer is Joan Cherry Isabella. Our producers are Elena Fruget, Jake Neer, and Anna Marie Seisling. Our sound engineers are Matt Trevethan, Rowan Niamisto, and Rasan Cherry. Senior editor and musical composer is Sam Bobian. Our digital and social media team is Maida Stangi, Shiraz Ahmed, and Tony Brown. I'm your host, Stephen Henderson. <laughs>